Hi, everybody. We are so glad that you are here today. If you have a Bible, I invite you turn, to turn to the book of Luke. We're going to look at two parables today. We'll start in Luke chapter 12, or as we say it around here, the book of Luke. Exactly right. Luke chapter 12. Now, what Jesus does here is brilliant, and he's in the middle of teaching a bit about what the posture of his followers should be like between his first coming and his second coming. He uh, is in the midst of a series of teachings and talking about uh, the posture he expects of his disciples when they wait for his return. And so we're going to jump right in the middle of this series of teachings. And we're going to start in verse 35 of Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come to wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You must also be ready because the Son of Man, one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself, the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So what Jesus does, and, and the parable goes on, in terms of uh, Jesus' response to a question uh, that Peter asks. But, but what Jesus is doing is he is using imagery very common to his day, of course. He's using master and servant imagery. It's not imagery we're real comfortable with. Uh, when we think of servants or when we think of slavery, we think of the kind of the great uh, blot on American history of our experience in slavery. Slavery back then or servitude is probably the better way to say it, uh, it was much different, was, it was a much different thing. Jesus uh, recognizes that there was a social kind of script that he could appeal to in using masters and servants. That, and that, yes, of course there were abuses, and that masters uh, would abuse their servants. And there were times, of course, when been, uh, being indentured as a servant was a horrible, horrible thing. But for many people, the ancient Near East and in the culture Jesus was speaking into, this was actually kind of a, a stopgap measure from keeping people from being utterly destitute. It was just assumed that most households had servants. In, in fact, if you got into, into really, really bad debt, I mean, you, one of the things that you could do under Jewish law is that you could uh, indenture yourself to somebody else to work to pay off the debt. And then if the Jews were faithfully following the instructions about the year of Jubilee, after so many years, you'd be released and the debt would be canceled. And so there were all these provisions in Jewish law and all of these kind of societal scripts and expectations Jesus is appealing to when he starts using master-servant language. So when you hear this language, don't think of American history. Think of what this would have been like 2,000 years ago. Now, what Jesus does is he uses a very common illustration. He says, listen, you, my followers, are to be like servants whose master leaves. And you have no idea how long the master is going to be away. You have no idea when the master is going to return. What should you do in the meantime? He says, watch and be ready. So whenever the master returns, you're there to serve. 
And so, you know, a silly analogy would be you're in high school and your parents leave. And this is the first time you have the house for the weekend. What will you do? Will you keep it clean and earn their trust and be ready for their return because you're not exactly sure when they're coming back? Or will you kind of do whatever you want? This, this is the kind of analogy that Jesus is using with masters and servants. How should you act when the master leaves? Do you stay ready and alert and watchful? Or do you take advantage presuming upon his delay? So he uses this very familiar social script. But what Jesus does, and he does this, of course, all over the time, all over the place in his parables, is that he reverses what the master does when he returns. The master comes in Jesus' parable. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to what? serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. So against all societal expectations, Jesus tells a story about a master who comes, and when he sees his servants being watchful, what does the master do? He takes upon himself the garment of a servant and waits on them. Now that doesn't sound like a big deal to us. But in, in, in the cultural garb of the ancient Near East, I mean, to tell a, the story about a master who serves is a really, really big deal. And for those of us who have images of God, of a God who stands far away, of a God who sits at the traffic light of life waiting for us to run the red light so we can get pulled over. For those of us that have the cosmic image of a judge, the cosmic image of a cop, the cosmic image of somebody who's just looking to punish us, the idea. And Jesus uses this image all over the place, right? He comes and he says, I come among you as one who serves. The Son of Man did not come, right, to seek. Now, how does that, how does that go? The Son of Man came to serve. Yeah, help me with this one. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, yes. But there's the serving one I'm forgetting in the middle of this. Nothing? Not to be served, but to serve. Jenny Key, you can't see her, but she is here, and she just saved me. <laughs> right? So, so, so the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. This is an image that Jesus uses all over the place. And for those of us who 2,000 years later have very distant uh, views uh, of God, a God who is angry, a God who is far away. The idea that God comes to those who are watchful and he serves them himself is a really radical thing. Even Peter, someone who'd walked with Jesus, as far as we know, uh, for the, the entire length and breadth of Jesus's ministry, when Jesus went to wash the disciples' feet, he just refused. It just, it's not how it works. And so Jesus tells a parable about a master who comes, and when he finds servants waiting, he serves them. Now, for some of us, if you're like me, that's a very easy-to-understand image, right? God, well, yeah, that's God's job, right, is to serve us and to love us for the apple of his eye. For some of us, we have a very different view of God, and this is good news. So to balance this parable, the idea that God is a God who comes to serve, he, Jesus tells a different parable in a different setting in Luke 17. So I invite you to flip over there. Jenny Key and I will preach together, and it will be glorious. Luke 17, 
we'll start in verse 7. And, and this is one of those passages that I, I had never really heard I'd never really heard mentioned. It's one of those, it's kind of like, oh, well, this is an interesting take on things uh, that's not terribly popular in the American church, but you'll see it provides a balance to the parable we just looked at. Luke 17, verse 7. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that, you may eat and drink? Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Now, this is a really interesting thing because it's, again, treading on this cultural script between masters and servants. Jesus tells a parable about a one-servant household. We know there's one servant because if you had more than one servant, typically you would have a servant that did outdoor work and a servant that did indoor work because you'd be contaminated with the outdoor work. If you had more than one, you separated the duties. In this case, we have one servant doing outdoor work and then coming in to prepare the late afternoon meal, something it's like three o'clock-ish, coming in and Jesus asked the following question. He says, suppose if you have a servant Uh, plowing or looking after sheep, will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? The way Jesus phrases the question in Greek, it expects a, a negative answer. Well, no, no one would do that. In other words, if you're the master of the house and your servant has been working outside and then comes to work inside, do you reward the servant with special privilege just because the servant's doing his servanting? The expected answer is, well, no, you don't. Will he say to the servant, come along now, sit down and eat? Instead, Jesus says, won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. And after that, you may eat and drink. Now, again, this sounds so odd to us, but the natural assumption is what do servants do? They serve. And so so Jesus is saying, hey, listen, Does a servant get anything special for doing what servants do? No. A servant serves. So which of you, if you had a servant who came in from the field and was preparing your food, which of you, because they were simply doing what they were supposed to do, would say, go ahead and eat before me. I'll serve you. The expected answer is nobody would. Instead, what Jesus says is you'd say, well, come on in, fix the meal, wait on me while I'll eat. And then you can eat after me. And everyone would go, well, yeah, of course. That's the way this whole thing works. Then Jesus says something that's kind of the key to the whole parable. He says, verse 9, Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Now, the word thank here, and this is really, really critical, you guys. The word thank here doesn't mean polite. It doesn't mean a verbal expression of gratitude. The word thank here has to do with indebtedness. In other words, I raise my children to say thank you, right? And we drive it into them, say please and thank you, please and thank you, please and thank you, please and thank you. So it's easy to read this in English and go, so we're not, Jesus is telling us not to thank people? No, no, no. The concept of thanks that he's using and referencing here is a concept of indebtedness. 
What he's saying, in other words, is that the master isn't put into debt to the servant because the servant does simply what servants are supposed to do. In other words, the script that Jesus is playing out that would have been readily accessible to his original audience was, listen, do you reward servants when servants do what they're supposed to do? No. Are you as a master put into debt to the servants when the servants just obey what they're supposed to be doing? Expected answers, well, no. You just do what you're supposed to do. And so Jesus, and, and this is really key to understand because there is lurking in the background of a parable like this, this concept of entitlement, right? Where, where does a servant, and, and, and to flip it, Jesus is saying, hey, does a servant come to a master and say, are you kidding me? I was serving all day in the fields. Now you expect me to wait on you? No, the servant understands the servant's job is to serve. And by simply serving, the servant does not place the master in some sort of obligation to reward him. Are you with me on this point? Because this is really, really a big deal. Jesus isn't talking about politeness. He's talking about indebtedness. So he's saying, listen, the obedience of the servant doesn't put an obligation on the master for special treatment. And we know this is what it's saying because notice what Jesus says when he applies it to us. He says, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. Now the word unworthy doesn't mean unloved, doesn't mean uh, unappreciated, Again, the word unworthy is related to the word thanks in the sense that it has to do with indebtedness. So Jesus has the servant saying back to the master, Master, you don't owe us anything. We're not worthy of special honor or recognition because we've simply done what you've called us to do. Now, do you see why both parables are needed in the American church? Because there are some of us who are terrified of God, convinced he's a cosmic cop, ready to strike us down at at just the briefest transgression. And we need to be reminded that what what is God like when Jesus reveals him? He's a God who comes among us to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, not to be served, but to serve. But if you're like me, I'm perfectly comfortable with the idea that God serves me. Of course he would. I'm his unique creation. I'm the apple of his eye. Of course God serves me. I'm like, yes, I'm awesome. And so Jesus tells another parable that says, hey, just so we're clear, there's one master. Everyone else is a servant. And you don't put God in debt to you when you do what you're told. Right? I mean, think about parenting. Bad parents reward their children for everything. Good parents selectively reward their children. But what we do instead is we expect certain things of our children, right? And they just do them. We don't throw a party for every little bit of obedience our kids do. Or what do they learn to expect? A party. And so instead of being grateful for the party, they come to expect it and be entitled to it. We know that God is a blesser. God is a giver of gifts. 
God is the author of every good and perfect thing. So we know he loves to give gifts to his children. The issue, though, is when the children begin to expect the gifts, to think they're entitled to the gifts. And so Jesus tells two parables. In one, a master finds servants who are ready and waiting. And what does the master do? He serves them in a great reversal of expectation. But then in another parable, Jesus says, listen, suppose you have one servant. You're a one-servant household. And suppose you come home, your servant has been working in the field, now is working in the house. Do you privilege, are you indebted to that servant for their obedience? The expected answer is, well, no, of course not. The master isn't indebted to the servant. That's what Jesus means when he says, well, the master thank the servant. Well, no. It's what servants do. Jesus then flips it and applies to us. So you also, instead of being entitled folks, when you've done your duty, you should say, God, you're under no obligation to reward us for merely doing what you've asked us to do. Now, I don't know about you, This is a bit relevant in my life because the way I look at it, there are two different ways. I try to put God in the position that he owes me. Two different ways I do this. When something bad happens, he owes me. And then when I do something good, he owes me. Right? This is how I work. And I never admit it. And it's so silly. And I understand it's crazy. But, you know, because I get to be the guy up here who speaks for everybody else, You, your laughter at my silliness will just confirm the sin in your own hearts because we recognize this is lurking, right? So so one of the things that happens in the Erie household is, of course, we, we have a wonderful son who has Down syndrome, talk about him all the time. One of the things I saw lurking in my heart once we discovered we were having a child with special needs was that God, and I didn't, I could never have articulated it in the moment, but I felt like, well, well, then God's going to really provide for us, right? I mean, he's, he's given us this kid. And so the, the assumption in my heart was, well, then he kind of owes us. I mean, we're called to steward this beautiful little boy, but doesn't that mean we get some extra treatment? I mean, doesn't it mean we get some breaks? Doesn't it mean we get a little extra resources? I mean, doesn't it mean we get some help? Right? I mean, and I, and I see this. I mean, sometimes if, if bad things happen, I mean, don't we want to shake our fist and say, well, God, look at what all I've done. Right? I mean, so something bad will happen. I've been out of work for two years. God, you kind of owe me, don't you? I just got this diagnosis. God, don't you owe me a healing? So, so what very easily happens, and this one makes the most sense, at least to me, is that when something bad happens or something I don't like, I look at God and say, hey, your job is to work this for good. And I define good as comfort, security, safety, you know, those sorts of things, isn't it? So God, you kind of owe me because you let this bad thing happen. So one of the ways I, I, and I hate to admit it, one of the ways I look at God as indebted to me is when he lets bad things happen and I feel like he's got to make it up somehow. And if he doesn't, I find myself kind of shaking my fist going, God, why? But the more insidious way I do this is that I keep score of all the good things I do and think that somehow God owes me for those. In fact, there was a rabbinic teaching back in Jesus' day that said, 
some of the Pharisees, and it wasn't all of them, uh, but some of the Pharisees believed that you could store up righteousness in good years so that when Israel was disobedient, God wouldn't zap them. So they, they taught that you could store up righteousness, that you could get points, you could kind of get credit for your obedience. In a manner of speaking, that you could put God in debt because of your goodness. And, and if I'm really honest, I think the same way. Instead of going, oh, those silly Pharisees, I mean, we, they're wrong about everything, of course. I, I read those stories and I read those quotes and I go, oh, I am that man. Right? We are, as the American church, we're that person. And so I just keep score with God. It's not just when bad things happen that he owes me, but it's when I do good things that he owes me. Right? I was, I was a missionary overseas. Why are we struggling when we've come back home? Right? I, I, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. How come the church isn't growing? I stayed pure before marriage. How, how come my marriage is hard? I've prayed for my kids their whole lives. Why are you letting them blow out? Those are all legitimate questions, but do you see the contractual language that undergirds them? God, I do this, you do that. He's under obligation. And so Jesus tells two stories. One, about a master who comes and he serves. He loves. He reverses the roles. But he also tells a story about servants who just need to be reminded that God doesn't owe them for their obedience. And I don't know about you, I need both of them. Because I'm a scorekeeper. I, when I first came to uh, uh, being a pastor, when I first felt called into that and started teaching on a regular basis, I had an old preacher sit me down and he said, Son, you know that Monday is the best day to sin, right? And I said, well, I'm a fan of any day that ends in Y, personally, but okay, so Monday, Monday it is. And, and, and he kind of got this crazy grin and he said, you know, one of the things that you're going to learn is that you're most open to temptation after God's used you. When you're tired and you don't feel appreciated, you're alone, you have no energy, there's a funk that happens on Mondays. And if you're not careful, you'll be tempted to think that that's the day you can screw up because you have time enough to earn it back by the next weekend. And I thought, and when he first said that, I thought, what a silly thing. But you know, the, the worship leaders I've talked to, the preachers I've talked to, there is this lull, there's this thing that happens on Mondays. And it turns out to be right. And what happens in my brain, if I'm not careful, is think, okay, well, at least it was early in the week. I really need to be good towards the end of the week because he's got to show up, man. We got all these people showing up and I got to be good. What kind of horrible thinking does that represent? And if you're sitting here right now judging me, I want to show it that you do the same thing. You don't do it driven by Sundays, but think about the ways that we keep score. I want to present to you two different days. Day number one. Now, I'm going to present it just from a masculine perspective for obvious reasons, and I don't understand the feminine mind. I'm just going to, I'm going to confess that. Women are beautiful and mysterious, 
and, and I don't understand them, and it's glorious. The, the problem is that my wife understands my masculine mind. It doesn't really like what she understands, but that's a whole, kind of a whole different sermon. And the four people laughed <laughs> in the empty room. Now, <laughs> consider two different days. All right, day number one, you get up late. You don't have, if you normally have time with God, you don't have time for time with God. You get up, you, 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 you're cranky, you don't feel good, you're running late for everything, right? Your wife uh, says something kind of out the door that kind of throws you off a little bit and you're kind of in a bad mood as you're driving to work. And as you're driving to work, people are cutting you off and instead of blessing them, um, you are responding in kind and, 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 and you're, just, you're just in a crummy mood and you show up to work and you get put in a meeting and, 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 and wouldn't you know it, one of your coworkers right in the middle of the meeting takes credit for work that you did. And, and this person's a non-Christian, but they know you're a Christian, but you know what? Instead of like just being happy that it got done, instead what you do is you confront the person over email, and then later you confront them in person, and you're angry, and you're, you're, you're completely unhappy with this person, and insulting them, and it's just a nasty, nasty day. You're getting emails that are critical, and you're just going through your day thinking, ah, this is awful. And when you go home, your car breaks down. It causes you to be late to get home. When you get home, dinner's late. Your wife's upset with you. Your kids are misbehaving. You totally overreact. Your wife then gets further mad at you because you've totally overreacted, and you overreact to her, and you sleep separately that night, and it's just ugly. That's day number one. Day number two, you wake up with the sun. You feel the very presence of God. It's close to you with every breath. You wake up praising. You spend an hour in the scriptures and God is speaking to you massively. You, you pray, you decide to fast that day. So you skip breakfast as you're driving. People are cutting you off and you pray for them. You get to work and someone takes credit for work that you've done and you sit back and you say, God, thank you for the opportunity to learn humility. You bless the people that are persecuting you. You pray for your enemies. When you're driving home, you see someone alongside the road walking. You pull over, you hear their story. You give them your car. You walk home you make dinner for your family, you lead the children in devotions and tell them about the coworker you led to Christ that day and baptized in the workplace restroom. <laughs> right? I mean, it's a glorious day. Your wife falls asleep as you're singing worship songs <laughs> over her. Now, thankfully, I've had neither of those days ever. <laughs> But let me ask you this question. The morning after day number one, is it me or would we all feel like we've got a bit of work to do to kind of make it up? You know what I mean? And, and, and wouldn't you feel like after day number two the next morning, wouldn't you feel like, I rocked it. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you feel, I mean, wouldn't your performance the day before affect how you thought God viewed you the day after? I mean, don't we? And isn't, theologically, isn't that an abomination to the cross? If it really is Christ's finished work, then whether I had a good day or bad day, 
is irrelevant, right? Now, of course, there are consequences to sin. Of course. Of course, we, sin interrupts the, the intimacy we have with the Holy Spirit. I mean, of course, we need to repent and be reconciled. Of course, all of that is true. I'm talking about how we relate to God. Of course, we confess, but is it me or after day number one, I feel like I owe God But then after day number two, I feel just a little bit like he owes me. See, I think the reason why the Pharisees speak for us is that they were scorekeepers, and so are we. And the problem is I keep score in multiple dimensions. When something bad happens, God, you have to fix this. God, you promised. You have to take care of this. And my version of taking care of and his version of taking care of are often two entirely different versions. But somehow he's indebted to me because he let this bad thing happen. But the more insidious practice is the one where I look upon my goodness and growth in Christ and think God owes me for that. I'd never say, hey God, I thank you that I'm not like a tax collector. But I would say, hey, God, thank you that I'm not like a Pharisee. And the minute you've said anything like that, you've just become the thing you're thankful you're not. And so Jesus speaks a word to his people. How should they be while the master is away? They should be watchful and ready and diligent. Because when the master finds them that way, he will come And he will serve them. Surprising. But there is a balance to that, right? Because to me, like I said, I'm all for God serving me. (laughs) I have no problem believing that he wants to do that. And there are many like me. There are others who need to be convinced that he is loving and he is good and he is kind and he is for us. So hallelujah that Jesus tells the first parable. But for those of us who, like me, want to somehow look at God and say, hey, you owe me, Jesus tells another parable. There was a landowner who had one servant. Does the servant put the master in debt to him by simply doing what he's told? No. The master does not, is not forced. And and again, God is a giver of good gifts. Hallelujah. He is a giver of the Holy Spirit. He is a giver of every good and perfect thing. The issue is whether or not he's obligated to. And so again and again, Jesus in his parables and his teachings brings to the people of God the reminder, it's all grace. It's all grace. We're not owed anything. We're not owed life, breath, We're not owed everything else. We're not owed 80 years of life. We're not owed significant health. We're not owed just an awesome marriage. All of it's gravy. All of it's gravy. And instead of walking around as people who say, well, God, look at what's happened to me or look at what I've done. We walk around and we just say, hey, God, thank you for the privilege being a part of your family. Because every now and again, I don't know about you, I just need to be reminded that the reward of obedience is obedience. What's the reward of forgiving people? Your freedom. (laughs) What's the reward of generosity? Your freedom. Now, God may give much more in abundance because of your generosity. God may bless you because of your forgiveness. But is he obligated to? No. 
We just have to be convinced that the reward of following Jesus, as we've talked about before, is Jesus. He's it. Living any other way is a way that we believe forces us to be less than fully human. Jesus, the God-man, teaches us not only what God is like, but he teaches us what human beings can be when submitted to the Holy Spirit. And so one of the things we must continually wrestle with, brothers and sisters, is what do we get for our obedience? Does God owe us because we simply do what we're told? So here's what I want to do this morning, excuse me, or tonight, or whenever you're seeing this. I want you to close your eyes. This is for you. And I I wonder if you would, just momentarily, would, would you consider the ways in which whether it's because of bad things that are happen, have happened or good things that you've done or maybe some creative way that I, my sinful mind is not conceived of, are there any areas in life where you feel that God owes you? Ask the Spirit just to test you, to speak to you, to reveal your heart. And if you're like me and something comes to mind, we just want to release God from that obligation. We just want to be reminded, God, thank you for the grace. Thank you for the grace. Thank you for the grace of just each moment, of each day, of each thing we experience. And not that he needs it, but would you release your claim upon him? We're to come as children, asking and seeking and knocking. Maybe the image of a closed fist opening up is an image that speaks to the releasing of our heart to a God who does come to serve, but it is no, he is under no obligation to do so. And so, Lord, you know my heart You know the hearts of every person in this room. And we're mindful afresh today that we stand before you solely and utterly as an act of grace. We receive from you again any gift that you would give. And we ask, God, that you would keep us from the entitlement that lurks in our hearts, that somehow we deserve or that you owe us. We want to be reminded that we are humble servants who are privileged to being a part of your movement. We are privileged, God, to call upon your name. And so keep us, guard us, protect us from the adversary. In a culture that just feeds entitlement, we want to be people who are humble and who are grateful. And so, Lord Jesus, continually be elevated in this place to the point where we again, understand that you are the treasure and there's nothing else we want. And so we ask your blessing and we ask the power and the presence of you, mighty God, to free us and keep us close. In Jesus' name, amen.